0: carbon capture, utilisation and storage will play a key role in the energy transition. As we get ever closer to net zero deadlines, CCUS is evolving from a niche market into a mainstream investment. On Wednesday, October the 11th, industry leaders and expert analysts in the field of CCUS will be meeting at the Hotel Zaza in Houston for Wood Mackenzie's Carbon Capture, Utilisation and Storage Conference. To make sure we capture every debate and discussion, our sister podcast, The Interchange Recharged, will be there recording all the highlights. We'll be capturing all the best conversations on CCUS value chains, the Inflation Reduction Act, global policy, and corporate investment trends. If you want a recap of what went on or you weren't able to be there yourself, the special podcast episode will be out on Friday, October the 13th at 7am Eastern Time. Make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss it. And if you're interested in attending the conference in Houston on October the 11th, there's still time. Go to woodmack.com slash events to find out more. Hello and welcome to The Energy Gang, a discussion show about the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Ed Crooks. It's good to be back again to regular service after I've had some time off. You may have heard the hydrogen specials that we released last week, but it's been a while since I've been involved in a regular episode of The Energy Gang. So it's great to be back. And it is great to welcome back two of our regular guests. We have Melissa Lott, who's the Research Director at Columbia University's Centre on Global Energy Policy. Hi, Melissa. How are you?
1: Hey, doing well. I'm in California this week, so not a bad way to start the day with some sunshine and and an ocean down the road, so.
0: (laughs) Indeed, even if it is a bit early in the day.
1: Ed, I've got a tea the size of my face (laughs) right now, thanks to the coffee shop downstairs. So we're good to go, but looking forward to
0: it. It's also a pleasure to welcome back Amy Harder, who is the executive editor of Cypher, which is the news publication backed by Breakthrough Energy. Hi, Amy, how are you?
2: I am doing well. I am joining you from Seattle, where I live, so I am used to these earlier mornings. Um, And I always have my large cup of tea here, <laughs> Melissa, so you and I can go
0: toe-to-toe on that. Fantastic. Nice. Nice. Well, thank you very much, both of you, for joining us today. So a couple of key things I wanted to talk about on the show, actually both, as it turns out, sort of inspired by things we've been hearing from the International Energy Agency. First one I really wanted to dig into was this question of critical minerals and clean energy and these ideas about how, as we transition to a lower carbon energy system, we're going to need a lot more metals, metals for everything from steel for wind turbines, copper for wiring, lithium, cobalt, and so on for uh, electric vehicle batteries and batteries for stationary storage and so on. All these kinds of things mean that we're going to have a greatly increased demand for metals. And there is quite a lot of concern about whether we'll actually be able to meet that demand. And it's something that My colleagues at Wood Mackenzie have been studying quite a bit. We've been flagging up some pretty big issues that could emerge over the next 10 years. When you compare what we expect demand for those metals to be, and we do expect pretty significant increases in demand, if you compare that with plans for adding mine capacity to actually produce more of those metals, it looks like it's going to be potentially a problem. New mines take quite a long time to build, perhaps seven to 10 years. And so when you look at things on that basis, there are some definite concerns there if you look at across the range of all the metals that people could be worried about, I think uh, copper is certainly one with identifiers, potential concern. Lithium is another one for batteries. As I say, that's a, another metal that could potentially be in pretty tight supply over the next 10 years. And that's really what we've been seeing from the IEA then is they've been gathering people together to talk about those issues, to talk about security of supply for metals. There's going to be a ministerial meeting in February of next year where they're going to talk about issues in terms of trying to improve transparency in metal supply chains, also talking about maybe uh, stockpiles of critical metals so that the world doesn't run out and there are some reserves available in case of disruptions to supply and so on. So quite a lot of activity here. The world is certainly starting to address these things. I guess the question is, are people doing enough And are we still going to have some real problems and constraints emerging in the energy transition because of shortage of metals? Just to kick us off on this one, maybe, Melissa, what do you think? I mean, when you take a step back and think about critical minerals and metals in particular and their relevance and importance to the energy transition, how worried are you about supply shortages?
1: So when it comes to the overall transition, I think there are a couple of different things. One You know, the concept that moving to net zero requires that we build a lot of stuff. All that stuff takes materials to build it. When you look at the lithium and copper, um, just as the two examples you flagged, Ed, you know, lithium today, we're producing 100,000 metric tons, I think is the rough global number per year. And for copper, it's 20 million metric tons. And so we need to increase both of those numbers quite a bit. Uh, in the case of copper in the net zero world, we ramp it up about 8x per year. And then in the case of lithium, it's 450 plus times per year. Um, and I think about it as follows. Yes, material substitution can help. Yes, recycling over time can help us to make sure that we don't just have to produce more and more and more Every year forever, but actually we are closing the loop with a lot of these materials because this is a fundamentally different equation than you know extraction when it comes to fossil fuels, where you burn it. it doesn't come back in a time frame that you I mean quite frankly care about it's well beyond your lifetime. and so you know all these things play into it, but the bottom line is we haven't really evaluated our supply chains. we're just starting to really do that now to internalize the degree of effort that is needed. Um, so this is something that you know if we're going to move to net zero quickly now's the time. And even if we're not fully, fully on the bandwagon to move to net zero as quickly as possible, or by mid-century, insert your date here, just the sheer shifts in our energy system because of declining costs also puts pressure on this. So it's a big deal. And I know you mentioned seven to 10 years. I was talking to a big mining company the other day, and they were talking 14, 16, could be 20 years um, for them to open some of their new facilities. And it's really, really tough. It's a long, term process of investment to get those things open.
0: And given all that, do you think policymakers maybe have been a bit slow to wake up to the salience of some of these metals? I mean, if you think that effectively back in Paris, when the world adopted that goal of limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees C, which implied net zero emissions around the middle of the century... Perhaps there and then people should have said, well, hang on, we know minerals are going to be vitally important to this. We need to make sure that we're going to have all the supplies of minerals that are going to be necessary to make this energy transition possible. Is this a case where essentially we haven't really thought it through that uh, that the world and I mean governments, as I say, I guess maybe including a lot of people in business as well in this, didn't properly understand the implications of what they were committing to?
1: I mean, I think that when the commitments were made, that was just it. We finally had a target. And so, I mean, I can remember critical minerals and supply chain conversations for, gosh, going back to the beginning of my work in this 20 years ago. So it's not like this hasn't been discussion, but exactly how much we're going to need. Well, until we made the commitments in the Paris Agreement, we didn't all agree on what the target was. And until you agree, if you're moving to 50% decarbonized, 80% decarbonized, 100 that really affects these numbers. And so the commitment to go to net zero allowed us to say, okay, given that, what are the other things we need to develop? And
0: that's where we are right now. Got it. So Amy, what do you think? Is there a problem that we've been kind of slow to catch up to?
2: We can always be faster at uh, being aware of, of the, the great challenges of the energy transition. So, would it have been better to have the International Energy Agency holding its first Critical Minerals Summit ten years ago? Yes, and the next best time is now. So, we at Cipher did a, a, an explainer on this just recently, and Melissa had some great numbers, kind of going really big on on what we need to kind of drill down—no pun intended—on to sort of what the energy transition will need. A typical electric car requires six times the amount of minerals of a conventional car. An onshore wind plant requires nine times more minerals than a gas-fired power plant. So those numbers kind of give you like a, a very on-the-ground understanding of what this transition is going to need. It's great that we're now reckoning with this, and I think the the solutions will be a mix of finding new technologies that can access these minerals in more environmentally friendly ways. It'll be recycling them, um, but there's no getting around that we need massive amounts of these minerals. One other thing I'll just say is, Yes, the energy transition requires a ton of materials. Our current energy system also requires a ton of materials. And that's something that I think uh, doesn't get noticed enough. And in fact, something that I want us to do at Cipher is we, we throw out all these big numbers about what the energy transition needs. Let's throw out all the big numbers that we're currently dealing with, with our fossil fuel system. There's there's one um, fact out there that something like half of the ships around the world are moving fossil fuels. That's shocking to think about the amount of infrastructure we need for our fossil fuels. So it's just a reminder that our energy system is big and no matter how we power it, it's going to require a lot.
1: And this is such a key point that amy 's pushing on right here, which is the extractive nature of our current systems and comparing that to the extractive nature of our future energy systems so it 's the same thing when we focus on costs costs of the transition, and we don 't talk about the cost of not transitioning and it 's one of those things where, yes, extraction is needed moving forward, but we really should put that in context with what we 're doing today in terms of extraction and as I mentioned a minute ago what that means in terms of one-way loops versus actually the opportunities to create truly circular economies, which is one thing that using metals that can be recycled allows us to do in a way that we can't currently with a lot of our systems.
0: Yeah, no, that's a great point. And I want to come on to the issue of recycling in a moment. But before we do, Amy, something you've been writing about in this context I thought was really interesting. You just mentioned looking for more environmentally friendly ways of increasing supplies of critical metals in order to meet increasing demand there's also obviously a lot of interest in environmentally unfriendly ways of increasing supply through deep sea mining and that's the thing i saw that you were discussing with the prime minister of norway the other day i'm sure a lot of people have read about this people will know what the potential is there there are these nodules on the seabed metallic nodules composed of typically manganese copper nickel minerals that could be very useful producing metals for the energy transition But it's a very disruptive, potentially disruptive production process involving robots scouring the seabed, collecting up these nodules, putting them up a tube to the surface. And there's a lot of concern about damage to deep water ocean ecosystems and potentially wider ramifications. Because this is something which is so new, hasn't been tried yet, people are not at all sure of what the knock-on effects might be. And there's also a lot of concern about sort of remediation and the question of whether remediation is possible and how costly remediation will be if you do try and do it. And so there's a lot of things that are kind of up in the air about this as a solution. But still, maybe given this increased demand that we're going to have, it might be necessary. And so you were talking to the Prime Minister of Norway, mean, So Norway basically, over the summer, they committed to allowing seabed mining in a large area of Norwegian territorial waters right and then there was kind of a revolt in parliament and some of the members of parliament said no no we should have a 10-year moratorium and we need more time to study the environmental impacts of this and so on and the prime minister was saying to you he didn't back that moratorium and he still thought the policy was the right one do you want to tell us a bit about that debate and and why Norway is apparently divided on this one?
2: Yeah, well, Norway, I was I was interviewing the Prime Minister of Norway, Jonas Gastor, who whose country is really a an, an interesting case study. Number one, they're among the richest in the world. The sovereign wealth fund is the largest in the world, largely due to the the wealth that it has accrued from its oil and gas industry and the high taxes it has placed onto its industry to accrue such wealth. And so in many ways, Norway has the money to be a leader on climate technologies. And although it does have a a leadership on gas and and a historical position on oil, it really wants to be a leader on climate change as well. So that's why I spend my time talking to the Norwegian prime minister and spending time in in the country itself. And so it's really now trying to transition its technological expertise from oil and gas to other technologies such as carbon capture and deep sea mining, as, as you say here. And so the, the government has proposed, there hasn't been a final decision yet, to open a large swath of its waters to mining for copper, uh, cobalt and other minerals um, that are critical to uh, the industrial transformation of um, our energy systems. Currently, China has a near monopoly on these minerals, along with other countries as well, such as the Republic of Congo, where China actually owns a lot of the mines um, and is actually still has dominance that way. And the prime minister has been clear that he says it can be done safely and in a sustainable way. To your point, Ed, minority part of the government has asked for a ten-year delay. When I was interviewing the prime minister during a Climate Week event a couple of weeks ago in New York, he was sort of uh, dodging the, the yes or no question that I had posed to him. And when I did say, "Do you support the delay?", he said, "No," a very short and curt no. He then questioned the arbitrariness of the ten-year delay, and ultimately said the decision will lie with the Norwegian parliament. So to be seen how that conversation ends, I will say that I also asked him about is there are, to what degree are you talking with other like-minded countries to try to work together to have some sort of, consortium on uh, deep sea mining to to help wean many countries off China's dominance in this area. And he said, this is something that we're actively considering and talking about. Um, So stay tuned there. I would imagine the United States would be involved in any conversations like that. So uh, the final thing I'll say on this is definitely the, the potential risks of this type of ocean exploration are great. I will also say that you know, let's pretend we were considering drilling for oil and gas off the shores of our world today. Imagine the uproar that people would have about that. So to kind of turn the tide, anything that disrupts our natural world can be upsetting. We're already doing that with oil and gas offshore. The question is, is, could we possibly never have to disrupt the offshore nature? Ideally, but if we don't you know, one could argue if you don't do it in deep sea mining, you have to go onshore where there's a lot more people and more opposition. So it's really kind of the lesser of a few evils.
0: Yeah, that's a very interesting thought. Melissa, what do you think? You're generally someone who's more concerned about the environmental impacts of the energy transition than I am and more cognizant and generally aware of the need to be careful when moving to the lower carbon energy system and doing everything that's required to get there. What do you think about this one, deep sea mining?
1: I think when it comes to deep sea mining and mining in general, um, and this came up actually in the International Energy Agency's, uh, the Critical Minerals and Clean Energy Summit that they just had, um, which is we should be doing these things as responsibly as we can. Now, there's sustainable and responsible ways to produce things that we need. Uh, we should do what we can to be as sustainable and responsible in that process. Now, does that mean absolutely getting rid of all risks? No, that's not possible. Everything we do has trade-offs. So, you know, there still will be risks, but I'm just smiling, cause Ed, I, you know me and my, my desert tortoise, <laughs> like, you know, these things that you care about. And this is the tension, right? That we talk about all the time on the show. If we don't respond to climate change, the science is really clear on the damages that will come with that. So we've gotta find a way to balance the trade-offs and an action's not an option. Like those costs are way too high. So whether it is deep sea mining, on land mining, combinations of the two, it's like, okay, how do we do this in a way that is as responsible as possible?
0: So to put you on the spot, you're a member of the Norwegian parliament right now. (laughs) Are you, are you voting Are you voting for the 10-year delay or are you saying, let's go ahead?
1: Oh, man. I punt because uh, I've never been to Norway physically on the ground there. So I just don't think I should be allowed to vote. Um, and this goes back, and this actually uh, brings up another key point in all this, which is we have to balance as global and local communities what we're going to prioritize and what is going to be acceptable to us. And so... I just don't understand all the nuances in the conversation there. I read about it, but I don't live there. And so really understanding firsthand what the concerns are, what is, you know, what makes it into headlines because that's, you know, limited page space. That's the things that come through. And then where are all the nuances in that conversation?
0: No, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think I come out pretty well exactly where you are, which is that I wouldn't want to rule it out at this stage. And I would certainly be in favour of studying it and looking at the environmental impacts and what they are and what remediation is possible and so on. I would want to explore every other possible option short of that that could provide other ways to provide increased supplies of those same minerals, or indeed actually to take away the demand for those minerals. There's there's two things you can do. You can operate on both sides of the equation. And it does feel like deep-sea mining is... An extreme to which we may be pushed, but perhaps if we're not absolutely pushed towards it, we should be very careful about it. I don't know, my, my terrible compromise between the right now and the 10-year moratorium is maybe a moratorium for a few years to do a bit more research and to explore some of these alternatives, which I do think are not being pursued as aggressively as they should be. And again, when you think about things that perhaps the world has been slow to catch up with, Um, A lot of the issues around recycling of critical metals, and for instance, as the EV fleet grows massively worldwide, what happens to all those EVs at the end of their lives, and how possible it is to scrap them and recycle them and get the lithium and other metals out of them. That seems to be really important and something that we do need to push a lot harder on.
1: I'll say I've spent the past two months diving deep into battery for electric vehicle supply chains because we're actually, um, now spoiler alert, uh, for the next season of The Big Switch, the podcast I do at Columbia, we're going deep on that and we're stepping through the process. We're going around the globe, you know, looking at all the different pieces from getting the raw stuff out of the ground, processing it, and turning it finally after many steps into the thing we we want, which is mobility, actually. It's, it's not even the car, though the car is fun. It's the mobility it provides us. It's getting us from point A to B. Um, for the most part, that's our priority. And Within each piece of that, I think when I look at the research and when I look at the analysis and when I look at the different conversations, a few things come through. And I actually think they ended up being captured pretty well in, I don't know if you guys read the outcome of the Critical Minerals and Clean Energy Summit that the IA put together, but you know it's the idea of we need to accelerate progress towards getting more of these minerals online. You know, we need we do need more, even if we get great at recycling, even if we get great at re- you know diversifying the types of materials we need and reducing the amount we need per vehicle or per unit of thing we create for the clean energy transition, we still need more. So, how can we unlock sufficient and secure supplies of that? And within that, there's gonna be roles for trade. There's gonna need to be a bunch of players on the board. Um, it's interesting, honestly, you guys, to reflect on this. As we come up and we're looking at the 50th anniversary of the Arab oil embargo and kind of what that did in terms of how we thought about security of supply and and what sufficient and secure supplies look like from an oil point of view. But putting that aside for a minute, you know, how do we create incentives for sustainable and responsible production? Because I think... Any of us who follow this, you know, and you read the stories of the human rights issues that are involved in some of today's supply chains to build out all kinds of different things that we use day to day are concerning. And so it's one of those, how do we do this right? And I'll just quote my colleague Dan Steingart on the, once we get it out of the ground, how do we create a system that is, you know, actually sustainable for the long term? and how he puts it as effectively, if we do this right, we end up mining more things for the next few decades. And then we might not have to pull out any at all. Or if we do pull out anything, it's a tiny, tiny amount to meet incremental increases in demand. But this is the whole idea of, again, these minerals and these materials, these metals can be recovered. That's a big difference compared to things in the past.
0: So how optimistic are you, Amy, about the potential of recycling? Do you think that can be a much bigger thing than it is today?
2: I, I think it will be helpful and essential, and it w- certainly companies that prioritize recycling will have a leg up because of the world that we live in today. Um, just some numbers here from Cypher's explainer on the topic. Increasing recycling rates of lithium would mean mining capacity for the mineral would expand eightfold from 2021 to 2050 instead of 13fold should recycling rates remain constant. So it's an improvement it is still a massive increase. Um, And another, that stat was from the International Energy Agency, of course, which just held um, the summit that we've been talking about. Uh, By 2040, recycling large quantities of several minerals and spent batteries could reduce combined supply needs for these minerals by just 10%. Honestly, I would have expected a higher number. So I think we need to put the pedal to the metal um, on recycling, but it, it, it doesn't take away the need for a big increase. I'll also just say, yeah, I read an article in Bloomberg over the weekend about how recycling of plastics, just normal consumer recycling, has been a failure. And we've seen a lot of headlines around that. This was one looking specifically at people sending their like plastic grocery bags back to stores and how they, they put trackers on some materials that m- most of them ended up in landfills, even though they were supposed to go to recycling facilities. And obviously I'm comparing apples to oranges in some respects, but recycling plastic, one could argue should have been easier and it hasn't been easier. And maybe I do think uh, including the consumer into the recycling equation makes it really difficult. I think we're just a lazy species who doesn't like to recycle properly. So when you deal with you know, corporations and companies that have systems in place to recycle, hopefully it'll be better. But suffice to say, we don't have a track record of recycling much of anything. I hope we can prove ourselves different.
0: Right. And so then going back to that lithium point, as you say, it's essential, it's got to happen, it can make a useful contribution, but it can't be the whole answer. So that then brings me to the other side of the equation then, which is reducing demand and the extent to which it's possible to kind of innovate and innovate away from minerals that are in particularly short supply. The thing I have to say I've been really kind of bowled over by, very impressed by and kind of surprised by, is how much innovation there has been in lithium-ion batteries and in particular The rise of the lithium ferrophosphate battery, what they call LFP, which is a different technology from the kind you'll find in your phone. And crucially, it doesn't use uh, cobalt and it doesn't use nickel. So those things, as you say, given that cobalt in particular is one of the very, very sensitive minerals because of its production in the Democratic Republic of Congo and child labor exploitation, its production and so on. A lot of very, very serious human rights issues involved there being able to not use cobalt is a great step forward. And these batteries, these LFP batteries, which had traditionally been uh, much lower performing than the lithium nickel cobalt and aluminium batteries, which are the ones that, as I say, more familiar from phones and laptops and whatever, the technology has come on hugely so that although the performance is still not quite as good, it's nearly as good, and it's certainly good enough, and it's good enough for a large number of electric vehicles. So that's been one thing which has been a huge positive step forward, really just in the past few years. That's a very, very recent development that they've become a viable option. And then the next thing now just emerging on the horizon is sodium batteries, not using lithium at all. And we've seen in particular in China, there's a couple of companies, BYD and Wahai, who last month announced a partnership saying they want to be world leaders in sodium battery technology. They've started work already on building a sodium battery plant in China, which they say will be available for making batteries for electric vehicles. And I guess maybe sort of light vehicles initially, maybe little delivery carts, bicycles, things like that. But even so, It seems like we're at the beginning of a potentially very exciting development in that technology, which could ultimately mean that we'll be driving around in cars with sodium batteries, not lithium batteries. And of course, there's all kinds of advantages. Um, I mean, some in terms of safety and so on, which are potentially significant, but also just all kinds of of advantages in terms of the availability of the raw material, because sodium is a lot more plentiful than lithium. How much faith do you think we should put in this? I mean, Melissa, interested in your thoughts on this. I mean, is this something where kind of, I mean, essentially we're seeing market forces at work, right, I guess, which is that markets can see tightness in lithium supply and demand. Therefore, the prices get bid up. Therefore, you get this incentive to innovate, and there's clearly... Large rewards to innovation. And if these Chinese companies do manage to crack these sodium batteries for EVs, there's potentially big profits to be made there. Is that a kind of a reassuring development, do you think, in terms of thinking about how we can continue to make progress and innovation can actually proceed really pretty rapidly to get past some of these roadblocks?
1: I mean, certainly innovation is encouraging. So I think about it in a couple of different ways. Like when it back in April when CATL made their sodium battery announcement and they were talking about like the energy density of it? And it's like roughly half-ish of a lithium-ion battery, but at the same time, if it's using materials that you might have greater access to – do you care? You know, and then going back to like how we use our vehicles. You know, there's different use cases. Some of uh, you know you think about huge electric heavy-duty trucks that are like long-haul shipping versus my everyday commuter car. You, you, like, <laughs> I remember back in the, the early 2000s, and you had like you know your family car, which was a minivan or a SUV or something, and then you had your like Geo Metro to like take you to work every day because it got amazing mileage, and so that's what you know. So these types of things, and that's a very U.S. centric point of view on that, but. Um, Um, the innovations, I think, are certainly encouraging. Here's where I get into this. um, Is it catch 22? I'm going back to my high school reading now, the catch 22 on it. So like on one hand, innovation can ease up pressures, but on the other hand, back to the point about how long it takes to permit out a mine and the type of investment these companies are having to make and commit to. it's, It's an echo of the same conversation we heard, what was it, right after Russia invaded Ukraine and the nuclear industry was saying, hey, we need this nuclear fuel, this highly enriched uranium that's only available from this one supplier. And different companies were saying, we can supply this, but you've got to give a certainty it's going to get bought. And so from a mining company's perspective, they're going to invest 7, 10, 14, 18 years in something. How are they confident that what they need is going to you know, be what the market wants at that time? And I will say around these innovations, the reason I'm not as concerned about it is back to our point we were bringing about earlier, which is we will need so much more of so many things. And right now the movement is so slow about getting new capacity online. I don't see that tension playing out yet, but I do wonder about it. There's a similar parallel actually between new production of minerals and recycling that could provide interesting dynamics in a decade or two. So the one last thing I will add is I've been in some interesting conversations with I'm going to call them battery recycling and material recycling centers, but I need to find I need to find a new a new name for them because they're not just quote unquote what we would think of as recyclers. They're actually recyclers and manufacturers. So they're saying, you know what? I can recycle the material and then I can sell it to someone or I can vertically integrate and actually absorb additional steps within that process. And I think this is something we're going to see happening in bigger and bigger ways where it's like Why just mine? Why not mine, refine, and turn into, you know, XYZ, whether it's a cathode or a cell or whatever piece of it is, because you want to capture more value in the supply chain. And you've got the minerals, so why not? Um, I think we're going to be seeing a lot more of that.
0: Right, which has been China's model to a large degree and it seems to work for them pretty well. And as you say, interesting to see other countries, other companies wanting to emulate that. Amy, what do you think?
2: Well, we've... You know, talked a lot about the daunting challenges ahead on our minerals uh, dependency, but there has been some progress underway already in terms of using materials more efficiency. Um, these numbers are again from the IEA that a 40 to 50% reduction in how much silver and silicone used in solar cells over the past decade has, quote, enabled a spectacular rise in solar PV development um, already. So, Um, And similarly, the amount of copper needed in onshore wind farm is set to fall by 10% by the end of the decade, according to Bloomberg NEF. So there has been improvements, which is great. I know this topic is often more doom and gloom than anything else. To Melissa's comments on just sort of finding companies that are trying to make use of other materials that are not as scarce Um, One example of that is Form Energy. It's a company, long-duration energy storage company, that's using iron, which is very abundant, to develop this type of technology. In full disclosure, um, Breakthrough Energy Ventures, which is part of Breakthrough Energy, is among the investors in Form. Um, But there's many companies like Form that are trying to take advantage of common, plentiful minerals for precisely the reasons we've been talking about today.
0: Yeah, a lot of the potential there is very exciting, I think. And actually, Form Energy, really interesting company. I think we should come back to that on another show, actually, because it's well worth digging into exactly what they're doing there. So you were mentioning um, solar power and what's happened to solar power, which is a great segue into the second thing I wanted to talk about today, which is, again, something else from the International Energy Agency, which is this report on, they're calling it the net zero roadmap, which essentially is kind of looking at how the world can meet that goal of the Paris Agreement of limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees centigrade. The report was kind of mixed, I think. I mean, I I suppose the one headline, one headline, the message they want people to take away, it is that that 1.5 degree goal is not yet out of sight. It is achievable. The world can still take action in order to limit global warming to that 1.5 degree threshold. But clearly, with each year that passes, it gets harder and the need for action becomes more urgent and the action that's required will be greater. I think you both read that report and had a look at it. What did, what did you make of it? And Melissa, I mean, did you agree with that broad conclusion?
1: So I talk about this with my students all the time, which is when we talk about the Paris Agreement and our targets, there's net zero and there's 1.5. And they're different things. Net zero is largely a moment in time. And 1.5 is about our cumulative actions. And so I think one thing, the IEA took head on a question that has been filling lots of conversations over the past, uh, certainly since the last IPCC report came out, but for the last couple of years, which is, is 1.5 even possible? Is it the right target anymore? You know, what is the right target, those types of things? And, you know, they say right in the headline, like, it's still possible, and actually, we see some encouraging things. But we are still seeing emissions not bend. We're not seeing the bend in the curve and the drop yet. And so, overall, I was really encouraged. I don't know about you, Amy, by the solar and EV numbers. I was like, "Hey, on track somewhere." Like that—that's pretty impressive. <laughs> um, like that's not something that I don't—I don't think I would have predicted that. Eight years ago, 10 years ago, definitely not. In the past few years, optimistic, but the numbers weren't showing me that quite yet. And now I'm like, okay, the numbers are coming through. And that shows the momentum that's also been um, supported by the incredible cost declines and the buildup of the whole supply chain so that we have more of those things Um, literally on the road or on the road as in on the trucks to get to our homes or get to our businesses or get to the fields where we're installing them. So I think overall, it was a really direct report and I appreciated that. It also, I appreciated the highlighting of what Russia's invasion of Ukraine has done to upending pieces of the energy system and how we may or may not progress forward and what the pathway may look like. I don't know. Amy, what did you think?
2: Yeah, I, I, I don't think we've ever had an instance where something or somebody was on track to achieve anything in the climate world. So the fact that two types of technologies are on track is pretty significant. And to your comment, Melissa, that you said you couldn't have imagined that a few years ago, this is a a comment I make a lot, which is we can't necessarily depend upon what happened in the past to predict the future. We often say, oh, this is the hottest year of our lives. We should think of it as the coolest year for the rest of our lives. And we need to think, we need to have that same framing for technologies as well. That said, energy transitions still do move very slowly, but we have made a lot of progress compared to where we were when the Paris Agreement was signed in 2015. And I think that's something we should keep that optimism strong, if bundled up with a lot of realism around it, uh, to think about these other technologies where the, where we're not on track. Everything from hydrogen to carbon capture, which are two technologies that um, we will probably need a lot of according to the models. And yet um, there are struggles in in both those areas.
1: Sorry, Amy, completely agree. Because when we talk about like electrification, electricity being the backbone of this whole thing, right? Um, We spend a lot of our time on the variable renewables, which are great and awesome. <laughs> when we have them, we want them, they're cheap, it's great. Uh, on the energy storage pieces, especially the short duration stuff around batteries, but the long seasonal duration, and then also the firm capacity, the it's just around when you need it stuff. We are still not spending enough space in our policies and space in our dialogues and conversations on those technologies, I think. And you know, if we want the road all the way to net zero, all the studies I look at, including ones you know with the analysis is mine, but also a lot of other folks, it just reinforces how we need all of that. So I guess now is time to, um, what'd you say, put the pedal to the metal when it comes to uh, getting a conversation going around practical steps to building those things out too.
2: We, Although if we're all going to be driving around in autonomous vehicles, pedal to the metal... Won't necessarily hold up as well, but mm-hmm. we'll tackle that when when the <laughs> driverless cars come for us.
0: Indeed, indeed, Amy. I have to say, I liked your your uh, kind of positive spin on the so far imagery. That that the line people use about this is the coolest day of your life so far, the coolest year of your life so far, always reminds me of that exchange in The Simpsons where one character says, "This is the worst day of my life," and the other one says, "You mean the worst day of your life so far?" Mm. and it's a reminder, as you say, things can get better as well as worse. One specific thing also that came up in the IEA's discussion was the question of carbon capture. I mean, you just mentioned that, and there's some talk about how if we don't act quickly, in particular, really this decade, then we're going to need very large volumes of carbon capture to have any chance of hitting the 1.5-degree goal. And as the IA says, carbon capture although it's kind of proven at relatively small scales, is definitely unproven at large scale. And in particular, we don't really have a business model for how we can make it work and make it pay at the colossal scale that would be required. Where are you, Amy, on the significance of carbon capture and how much, in the end, we're going to have to ultimately rely on it?
2: I think for the industrial space, it's... um... Pretty clear that we're we're going to need some form of carbon capture on a lot of these technologies uh, for things like cement making and uh, other types of manufacturing. Where it's less clear and less probably economical is in the electricity space, at least here in the u s, renewable energy it's just too cheap to really justify the very expensive technologies of carbon capture that you have to put on these plants now that raises a conundrum which is that there's a lot of young for lack of a better word coal plants in asia that according to the science will need carbon capture and who's going to pay for that one of the biggest challenges in carbon capture across the this the realm of whether it's on a power plant or an industrial plant is that each m- most of these pieces of equipment need to be um, made special for different types of um, facilities. So you can't, you can't make it modular and just slap it on like you can a lot of other technologies. And that's one of the biggest reasons why costs remain really high uh, for carbon capture. One question that I've been noodling on, which is something we see across the realm on difficult climate technologies, for me, it's clearest in the carbon capture and biofuels area is... Is carbon capture, and then also biofuels, are they just taking a really long time, or are they just never going to work? At what point do you decide that this technology is just not going to work? We're, we're starting to see, you know, th- there's been like an arc of, for a while, carbon capture was connected just to coal. You called it clean coal technology. I did as well. We're not really hearing the term clean coal anymore. We're really hearing it, the technology being more attached to industrial applications, But now, so for a few years, there was more positive talk of carbon capture. I'm starting to see more negative talk about it as well. Uh, The former vice president and um, environmental activist Al Gore is one important voice in this. He, and one loud voice, whether or not you agree with him. I spoke with him at a COP um, several years ago, 2017 or 18, where he had sort of cracked open the door to carbon capture as as a really inconvenient climate technology. But now he's just slamming the the industry, the oil and gas industry and the technology of carbon capture. It's just another way for the industry to continue its business as usual. So I think we're at this point where the oil and gas industry really needs to come to the table with money and with commitments to show that they're really trying to make carbon capture work uh, instead of it just you know, is it 10 years on the horizon or is it just not on the horizon and and we're seeing mirages of of the technology working? I think that's something that I've been thinking about a lot and I think it's the the jury is still out.
0: Yeah, that is a great point. I do very much agree with you on that. The question still lurking in my mind is whether that 1.5 degree goal is really worth holding on to and whether we should actually just admit that practically for practical purposes, it can't be done. As you say, I don't bet on horse races either, but if I was betting on a horse race, I would not bet on the horse called 1.5 degrees. And obviously there's a certain amount of, you know, pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will going on here. You know, I mean, I think it's, it's totally legitimate to say we should have a stretch goal. And I think it's what is absolutely right is that every 0.1 of a degree matters and every 0.5 of a degree matters even more. And so we should strive for the best possible outcome that we can get. Is a 1.5 degree goal really the thing that will lead us to those best possible outcomes? I don't know.
1: The answer is transitioning as rapidly as practically possible. We need to think about the potential negative impacts, mitigate those impacts as much as we can, of course. But you know, like overall waiting doesn't help us. It makes the whole thing more expensive. That's at least what the evidence is telling me. And that's not, you know, modeling that I have done. That's what a lot of really smart climate and health modelers have done. Um, Energy systems modelers, that's where I come in looking at the costs. The cool thing right now is that we actually have a lot of the technologies we need and they're cost effective to get this done. It just takes as you know, many have said increased ambition and commitment to that ambition. So um, I'm just chuckling, Ed, because you knew exactly. Yeah, what absolutely.
0: I was and say agree with you. <laughs> and as you say, as you say, we've been doing this podcast too long. Clearly now. And- <laughs> Uh, and But, but it's, you should feel uh, uh, it's pleased though. and proud of that because that is something I've very much learned from you. And that is totally <laughs> a concept that I've taken on board because I've heard you say it. I still don't think you've quite answered my question about whether that specific target of 1.5 degrees is actually helpful or ultimately counterproductive because it seems very likely we're going to miss it. I mean, again, as I say, I'm not kind of welcoming that. I'm not in any sense kind of cheering that on. But just if you're being absolutely coldly realistic about the path we're on, it seems unlikely.
1: Well, I'll I'll say this. Like, you know, I don't... Know that opening up the conversation, like the Paris Agreement said, well below two degrees with an ambition for 1.5, and this has been summarized as we've committed to 1.5. In many cases, the reality is it's saying below two degrees is our aim, and as close to 1.5 as we can get is is what we want to aim for. So I think actually the Paris Agreement and you Ed see eye to eye, and I'm I'm with you. It's like okay, what's our target? It's below two. Okay, so if it's 1.8, 1.7, 1.6 you know, all of that is within that thing that the world got together and said, this is what we're going to agree to. So.
0: Yeah, that is a great point. And actually, it'll be interesting to see whether that, as you say, the quite specific wording of the Paris Agreement does start to emerge again as sort of more of a focus and more of a kind of Key point in the conversation, which in the year since Paris, it feels to me that we've kind of drifted a bit away from that. And 1.5 has very much been the focus, with good reason, because 1.5 is the goal that really does minimize the costs and the damage done by climate change. But it may be a thing that we have to do over the coming months and years is move away from that. We shall see.
1: And the other thing I will say that since 2015, we've learned a lot more about. The damages that occur at 1.5, 1.6, 1.7, like the science has continued to improve. And, you know, it seems to just be reinforcing the whole, all right, what's the practical pathway forward? Let's go down it as quickly as we can together. There you go. Anyway. Absolutely.
0: No, fantastic. And Matt, there we go. A note of total agreement for us to end on.
1: Well done. High five. <laughs> Absolutely.
0: <laughs> like... <laughs> Unfortunately, we do have to leave it there. Just quickly, time for our free electrons, personal things that we've brought in that we've noticed over the past few weeks in the world of energy. Amy, what's yours?
2: Well, the the Cypher team had our first in person meeting in New York a couple of weeks ago on the sidelines of Climate Week. And after the craziness of all the, the events and our meetings, we. Uh, had a team activity. We went to Arctic House, which is a digital art museum in Chelsea, and um, there's also one in DC, and the, the exhibit this time is the Webb Telescope's images displayed on nice. a massive immersive screen. Yeah, nice. so it's really cool. Oh, and gosh. in addition to just sitting there and feeling how small you are and how big the world is, they also had really cool supplementary uh, exhibits about, um, energy and climate change. And I was like, Oh, that's so on, on brand for our activity. I did not um, anticipate that. And so I highly recommend you go check it out. If you live in DC or New York, um, they had one interactive art installation where it showed a global power grid. Of course, energy gang listeners know there's not one single global power grid, but um, they've somehow put on screen all of the, you know, a, a compilation of all the different electricity wires around the world, and they would move with where your hand moved. So it was just really cool to help make tangible what is a very intangible um, industry. And then another cool one they had was they showed a drop of water dropping into a, um, a small pool every 28 seconds, and and it says every 28 seconds, according to this is according to NASA data. For every water drop, an ice mass equivalent to the Chrysler building melts. You know, that art can really be a, uh, a really compelling way to make tangible both our energy systems and climate change. And so our team was just in awe and very relaxed after after that. And so I highly recommend everybody go check it out if you can. Yeah,
0: that sounds absolutely fantastic. I will definitely go and take a look at that. Melissa, what's yours?
1: Um, So I have been getting into the whole, it got cold for like a week. Well, cold-ish. The seasons changed in New York. You remember that, Ed? We had all this rain and cool weather for like a week. Now it feels like summer again, you know, but um, I, I started kind of bringing out my fall cuisine. Um, this relates to energy in the following. So my slow cooker came back out. I don't use it a lot in the summer because I just want to eat like fruit and cold things. <laughs> you know, that's what I want when it's hot outside. Um, but I was thinking about it. And did you ever run across the wonder bag? Do you know what I'm talking about? Um, so, okay. So there are a couple different technologies. Wonder Bag was just one of them maybe a decade or so ago when I was looking into clean cooking options, which is essentially how do I get a pot really, really hot and then I put it in a well-insulated container so that it can just like cook itself over a period of time. I use a lot less fuel. I produce a lot less air pollution. I use a lot less energy um, when it comes to, you know, how I think about insulation on my slow cooker or something else. My slow cooker, I was looking at its insulation levels. I think it does a pretty good job, but it could be better. Um, But the overall idea of like, how do we think about being more energy efficient in our homes? Um, So for me, I've been going down the rabbit hole on how much energy my slow cooker uses to actually slow cook soups and stews and actually enchiladas, um, enchilada mix and other things, lots of casseroles. Um, But that's my latest rabbit hole is going down the different cooking things. But I was rediscovering if the Wonder Bag is still out there and it very, very much is. So it's about you know how do we get air pollution out of homes while also tackling climate issues and how is that all related?
0: Uh, Well, that's cool. So this has been very informative for me already. I've learned two things about the exhibits that uh, Amy was talking about now about the wonder bag, which again that was new to me. I'm going to go and Google that immediately. Uh, We stop recording. So mine, I'm afraid, is much less interesting than either kind of the arts or cooking. It's about hydrogen. If you've been listening to Uh, the hydrogen specials that we um, put up on the feed last week, you'll know there's very lively debate about the question of low carbon hydrogen and whether it's really low carbon and what it takes to be low emissions. In particular, that's very relevant to the debate in the US right now, because I'm sure you know the Inflation Reduction Act passed last year had very generous credits available for low carbon hydrogen, But the precise definition of how you can claim eligibility for those credits and exactly what types of production process count as low carbon and so on, that's not yet been specified by the government. And there's been debate over that. And we thought maybe we'd get those specifications earlier in the year. We still haven't had them. It's now emerged. It's being reported in a few places that it won't be until the end of the year that we're going to get those details out of the u s. government, knowing the way it's slipped already um it's quite possible it'll slip further into next year. I think I wouldn't be at all surprised if that happens, but it's I think a really interesting sign of hydrogen has huge potential there is definitely in particular we've been talking about some of these hard to abate sectors, industrial processes and so on, where renewable energy uh renewable power in particular might not really cut it as a means of decarbonisation. You need something else. Hydrogen could be a really good solution for that, providing that its uh, emissions are low enough. And the question of how you actually kind of monitor and verify that and make sure the emissions are really low and how you make sure you are incentivizing the right kinds of production, while also not putting a crazily onerous regulatory burden on the industry and kind of stifling all activity and stopping anything happen because the only hydrogen that qualifies for the credits is hydrogen that's really uh, impossible or hugely expensive to make. It's a very, very difficult balancing act. There's also a very diverse range of players in the industry. Keeping everybody happy at once is not going to be at all easy. And so it actually doesn't surprise me at all. The administration is taking a long time to think about this. And it's, as I say, not yet been able to come out with an answer. And I guess it's also just a kind of something to think about in the wake of the Inflation Reduction Act. Lots of great stuff in that act. Lots of really great things done for low carbon energy in general, but there's a gap between a lot of good intentions and a lot of positive moves in the act and actually getting the results you want on the ground and actually getting that investment capital mobilized to build all that low carbon infrastructure. There's still a lot more to be done. So, as I say, we do have to leave it there. Thanks very much indeed, Melissa, for joining us today.
1: Yeah, thanks, Ed. Um, enjoyed this conversation with you and Amy. Good to see you both.
0: Amy, thank you very much for joining us.
1: You're very welcome. Thank you for having me.
0: Been really fantastic to have these conversations with you again. Thanks very much to our producers, uh, Sam Nash and Toby Biggins Gilchrist. And above all, of course, thanks very much to all of you for listening. We will be back in a couple of weeks with more news and views from the energy transition. And until then, Goodbye.